You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money, and we've got the OG BFF, that would be your best financial (laughs) friend, in the studio with me this week. All right, I'm going to confess, I had to ask Kelly what OG (laughs) means because I've never heard it. She, She writes these intros for me sometimes, and... Okay, and I'm I, not I was that wondering cool. who the OG was. I can't believe I'm the OG. You're wow. the OG. I didn't You're know the... it was me. I thought we were talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking to Shannon McLay, and Shannon is the founder and CEO of the Financial Gym. They are a financial services company that is disrupting the industry's approach with women and some men. Mm-hmm. We, we, we men do are need to note on how they overhaul their relationships with money and work toward financial success. She is also the host of the award-winning podcast, Martinis and Your Money. And it's a little too early in the day for a martini. I'm drinking coffee. It's all good. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Shannon, welcome. Thank you. So excited to be here. The OG BFF. That's high praise from from Kelly. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) For those of you who are listening who didn't recently catch Shannon on the Today Show, you should tune in and watch it. She did a terrific segment. Tell us a little bit more about you and about your journey to the financial gym. Yeah, I feel like an OG because I started working on a trading floor 18 years ago, Bank of America. So um, I feel like the old lady um, of the crew. (laughs) (laughs) You are not, by the way. There are some days I, I feel like it more than others. But I started working 18 years ago on a trading floor. And I was one of 15 women out of 280 people on the trading floor. I loved it, though. I mean, there's all this meat two stuff out there now. And and that certainly was an issue when I worked there. But I loved it. I loved the environment. I didn't mind working with men. Um, I took all of the comments as just part of the job. It really didn't bother me too much because I loved the work. And I did that for, I worked in financial services between a trading floor and hedge funds for about 13 years. And then I was back working at Bank of America and working with Merrill Lynch Advisors. And I was around 33 at that point. And I felt like I need a financial advisor. And um, I was married at the time with a child looking to buy a home and all of the reasons why people feel like they need a financial advisor. And I was working with the advisors at Merrill Lynch. And I thought it's going to be so easy for me to find my advisor because I'm working with all of them. And I tell people in the process of looking for myself, I became woke to the advisory space and realizing that 85% are men. And I always say there's not anything wrong with that. I I married a man. I birthed a man. I, I love men. Love men, martinis, and money, (laughs) the three M's of my life. But I thought if somebody, it felt unfair, especially if a woman wanted to find something different, you couldn't. And so I thought if you can't beat them, you should just join them. So I became a Merrill advisor. And in the process of working with high net worth clients, which is what you had to have, you had to have $250,000 to work with me as an advisor at Merrill Lynch, I started meeting pro bono clients. So people who didn't have 250000 in assets, which is the majority of the population, but they wanted to talk to a human being. And I loved that pro bono business so much more. And 
I decided to start the gym to to really help the the pro bono clients, which is really the majority of America. The financial advisory space has been shaken up, mm-hmm. I think, in the past few years. Well, n- not just because it's flawed. It's just it's changed in much the same way that I see other areas of retail changing. Mm-hmm. I, I see financial advisors now who will work by the hour. Mm-hmm. I see advisors who will work by the plan, mm-hmm. who sell a monthly subscription, who it, it's become much more democratic. Have, have you yeah. noticed that? It has to. I, financial advisory started decades ago because investing and and knowing about the markets and all those details, but this is pre-the internet, that information was a tightly held secret that was only known by advisors with their Bloomberg terminals and, and their access to this information that wasn't available to the public. And I think with the onset of the internet and the democratization of of investment knowledge that that part of the advisory business had to change. And I saw that when I was at Merrill seven years ago. I said, I remember telling one of my managers, why don't people just invest in one mutual fund or one ETF? Because it just seems like asset allocation is all it is anyway. So why not just do that? What What is the role of the advisor if it's just investing? And I feel like if you're if you have an advisor who just does investing and you're paying for that, I think you need to be thinking through that advisory relationship. I think advisors now have to be more holistic in their approach of working with clients. Like you just mentioned, I think they have to approach their clients from a compensation standpoint differently. But I also think they need to approach their clients from the advice, the advisory they're giving from a different standpoint. I had a chance to sit down with Kathy Murphy, who is the president of Fidelity, who talked about the financial services industry being an industry that was invented by men for men. Mm -hmm. What do women want from our financial advisors that is different? I think we see this at the gym. I think what women want is to feel comfortable with their advisor. To We joke at the gym where the BFF came from. We say we're your best financial friend. And we see a lot of clients wanting that. There is a lot of discomfort, especially with women and money. There's a lot of emotion around money. The two words we hear at the gym all the time are fear and shame, which are very highly charged emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's around money, which is just our lifeblood, really. And I think women have a disconnect with money. Um, the language is is archaic, and we don't connect with it, the jargon. So I think we just want to feel comfortable, empowered, and engaged with our money. We want our advisor to give us that comfort level of help us kind of become empowered by our money. We're looking for somebody to kind of bring us into that space and um, and help us feel more comfortable with it. Tell me how the gym works. Yeah, the gym is like a regular gym where you pay a monthly membership fee. But unlike a regular gym, you actually get a trainer, a financial trainer, your new BFF. We say your best financial friend. And the trainer-client relationship is based on my last five years of building this. And it's it. I, our clients describe the trainer-client relationship all differently. Some clients see it as a therapist, like their money therapist, a life coach, a financial advisor. But we're going to look at everything with our clients. So we're our first session with our trainers, we call the financially naked session. We say money's the ultimate taboo topic, and we think that believe that we're more comfortable getting physically naked with people than we are financially naked with them. So it's a very, um, it's a lot of people have a lot of discomfort in that, and that's why they're actually not 
engaging with their money because they're uncomfortable with it. So we want you to get naked with us and feel like no shame or fear at the gym. We have our gym location in New York. We also work virtually with clients, but at the gym, we say our workout equipment is wine and Kleenex. We actually, <laughs> we have a money bar at the gym. Um, so to help you get naked, we want you to uh, feel comfortable. And then the next week, you'll get a financial plan from your trainer, which is very specific to you. Here's how much you need to be saving. Here's how much you need to be um, paying off your credit card or your your student loans, how you manage your debts and whatever specific to you. And a big issue we see with women in particular, and this has become a real big motivator for me and what we do at the gym, is making enough money to part of what we're telling our clients is, here's how much you need to be making based on your lifestyle and everything you want to achieve in life. And I think there's a significant disconnect, which you've talked about. We we all know with women and, and making more money. And that's definitely a priority for our clients and, and helping them with that. How are you helping them solve that problem? I mean, if it, yeah. I know every situation is individual, mm-hmm. but if there are some threads that you can pull together for yeah. women who feel like, yeah, I'm an under earner. I haven't yeah. gotten a raise or asked for more money or gone for a new job in a really long time. I think half the battle with women and we see with our clients is identifying how much they need to make. And one of the biggest things we say we do at the gym is we help our clients identify their goals and what they really want to accomplish in life and goals that resonate with them. I think this is also a challenge with women and money is that a lot of the goals that you see out there, the traditional financial goals like save for retirement, pay off student loan debt, or buy a house. If if we don't have that as a life goal or that doesn't resonate and, and create some kind of an emotional response from us, then we're not going to be engaged with it. We've got clients who love travel. Travel is the number one goal of the gym, or they just want to get a fur baby. You know, they don't want to, uh, an, 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 always, my, my team gives me a hard time when I say real babies, <laughs> fur babies. I mean, but we have more clients who want dogs than, than kids. And but dogs cost money. And mm-hmm. so, um, or tattoos, tattoos, I didn't realize how much tattoos cost. We have clients with tattoo funds that are like thousands of dollars. Really? But yeah. Yeah. I, I, we have, we have, I can't tell you how many clients have tattoo funds in the gym and um, all different clients. But the point is like setting those goals and then knowing how much money it takes to accomplish those goals. And if it's an ongoing goal, like a home, like a fixed cost, like a home or um, paying off student loan debt, that's a certain amount of money you need. And then to save, you need a certain amount of money. So we're first identifying the goals and then we're identifying how much money you need to make those goals happen. And for a lot of women, that's eye-opening because, you know, we just take that number and put a salary on top of it. And for most people, it's a lot more than what they are making currently. And once they know what it is, is it easier for them to go out and get it? Yes. I literally, it's almost like magic happens. And my trainers will give the income management goal to their clients. And and we love at first like clients look at it and they're like, okay, great, I need to be making thirty thousand more. Easier said than done. But what the trainer's trying to point out is, look, I'm just telling you this is how much you need for all of your things to happen. So it's thirty thousand, and we've had I can't even tell you, Jean, how many clients we've had who um, they get their number and they make it. We've had clients who are making thirty. We tell them sixty is their number, and then a few months later they tell email their trainer, I, I'm making sixty thousand or. We just had a client, We on her first plan meeting, she was making 90, and the trainer told her, you need to be making 140. And she was literally interviewing for jobs. She said, this is good to know. I'm literally interviewing for jobs right now, so now I know how much to ask for. And we told her, if you want 140, ask for 150, mm-hmm. because you're not going to get 140. She asked for 150. She's making 145 within a month of getting her financial plan. It's amazing, and it brings me very naturally to the fact that 
it's very important that we have these sorts of conversations. Her Money is brought to everyone listening by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is on a quest to inspire women to be in the financial front seat of their life. Mm -hmm. And that means we talk about knowing what you owe and what you own and how to reach your goals, but also getting a grip on the numbers, getting Mm -hmm. a grip on things like how much do I need to earn in order to have the life that I want to have. And from understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating the sort of holistic investing plan that Shannon is talking about, Fidelity can help, and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We're talking with Shannon McClay, founder and CEO of The Financial Gym. How much of a big deal is accountability? The fact that you've got, when you have a planner or you Mm -hmm. have a trainer, you've got somebody who's saying, hey, you said you're going to do this. Did you do this? Yeah, we're over 1,200 clients and growing every day. And I tell people probably 100% of our clients would say accountability is the reason why they're successful. And 90% of our clients are achieving their financial goals. Some of them take a little bit longer because just like getting physically healthy takes some time, getting financially healthy will take some time for people to understand um, how much they need to make and, and put those wheels into motion. But the accountability of the person saying, hey, where are you? Three months ago, you said you were going to do this. Did you do it? Um, and the accountability without shaming, you know, I think a lot of, we have a lot of uh, clients who we set out goals for three months. We meet in three months they haven't done them and they almost don't want to come in you know like a regular trainer they're like I don't really want to come in and weigh myself because I didn't do anything and all my trainers will say we don't care that you didn't do anything but come in let's do a reset why didn't you do anything and let's let's maybe create different goals that you can be more successful and and feel confident about doing accountability. I always, I don't care if you work with us or somebody at Fidelity or um, or any other financial advisor or planner. I'm a big believer in the accountability relationship you have with a planner, and I think it's a huge part of our client's success. I want to touch on your experience raising money for mm-hmm. this business. You have been out there as a female founder. And it's not easy. No, it is not easy. Last year, I raised a little over $1.8 million to build our prototype gym. And I, I mean, like a lot of uh, founders, I had you know the dozens of conversations with venture capital investors. Um, but literally, all the numbers you read and see are true. So 99% of venture capital investors are male. And I have a business where 95% of our inbound traffic, our calls to our gym are women. Mm-hmm. And um, our gym population is is 60% female, 40% male. But who's actually reaching out to us are female. So here I was raising money for this business that women were coming to every single day and looking for us and asking for money from men who said, I don't get this. I don't understand what you're building. Um, and they were like, why do you have to have a place, a physical location? Why can't you be an app or a bot or a website? All the things that the men wanted me to be. And my two lead investors were men. So it's not that men don't get it or they can't. It sometimes takes a harder time to find that. And I had so many interesting conversations uh, along the way of raising. I had one in particular investor tell me that, and I love when they say things when they don't realize how dumb they sound, but he said, Shannon, it must be really hard for you to be raising money because 
men tend to disassociate intelligence with looks. So they probably don't think you're that smart. And I was like, wow. Oh, my God. And I said, oh, um, did did he? Okay, first of all, did he offer you money, and did you take it? No, no. He oh, he thought I had a dumb idea. He was probably disassociating my intelligence, <laughs> and he was speaking out for himself. But it's so funny because I tell people this story, and I said I was the ugly duckling growing up, like big glasses. I had these Sally Jesse Raphael glasses, big, big red glasses, and and all, I felt very awkward and geeky, like most kids through middle school. So I never associate with the attractive person. So I was like, I don't know who he's talking about. I'm the smart one. Um, but yeah, that. and then I said that to other male friends, that this comment, and they were like, yeah, it's kind of true. And I said, it's really unfair because a woman doesn't disassociate intelligence with looks with men, but yet. And, so and a things. woman would never say that out loud. No. <laughs> I mean, it's just horrifying. Yeah. But you know, the problem was not even just the men. Speaking of women, sometimes the women were really hard to raise money from as well. You know, there's that like mean girl things that happen too, where they're almost harder on you because you're a female. I had a, a female venture capital investors ask me what kind of brands I associated my business with. And I said, I feel like, you know, Soul Cycle, Dry Bar, these retail brands that women are really like engaged in and, and passionate about. And she said, well, okay, that's fine, but those are sexy. Like women want to wear a Soul Cycle t-shirt, but, you know, saying that money wasn't sexy. And I was like, well, people want to wear a financial gym t-shirt. And by the way, money should be sexy to women. Like there's nothing sexier than control of your money and, and power over your money. I mean, but that was this woman's response. It's an uphill battle, yeah. always. Yeah. So what would you tell other female founders yeah. who are thinking, okay, I'm going to take this leap? I think if you have an idea that you literally cannot sleep at night over, you're so passionate about, I, I say continue to move forward with it. If you do need to raise money, especially from larger investors, I think the best lesson I can give women, and actually this is one of my investors gave me this lesson, is that investors are always looking for a big idea, something really big. It can go as you know, across the world, it's this big, big concept. And I don't think women think big enough, especially when you're starting a business. You might think, oh, I just want to open up this one location or if I get this one thing. And I want women who have an idea to dream bigger and think bigger about your idea because that's what people are looking for. And that's actually anything's possible for you when you start a business. So think bigger. Um, there is a language with investing, um, with just like investing, there's a language with venture capital. Mm -hmm. um, it's really important to learn the language because men need to hear it in the, the language they're speaking in. So that's um, some tips too. And then just don't let all the no's get you, just turn you down or, or distract you from what you're doing because you'll find the right yeses. And when you do, it's it's the perfect combination of the right investor, the right company, the right founder. Shannon McClay, great advice. Thank you so much. We'll Thanks, look forward Jean. to having you back. Thanks. And we'll be right back with Kelly and our mailbag. Kelly Hultgren, our producer, has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, guys. We are overflowing with questions today. We've asked Shannon to stay for the first one, so let's get right into it. Yes, I'm glad you're here, Shannon. 
Emily writes, hello, I've recently become obsessed with your podcast and listen to anywhere from one to five or more episodes per day. Wow. That is awesome. Thank Thank you, you. Emily. Her money helped me realize that I want to help others with their financial futures and become either a planner or a coach. While I explore this career and decide which path to take, I have been offering free consults to my friends, fellow millennials, and helping them set up budgets, savings plans, plans to pay down debt, and helping them understand how credit scores work. Opening the door to conversations about money has been so empowering. Thank you for the inspiration. In episode 49, you mentioned that there are a number of major financial institutions who train advisors. I looked up Fidelity and know that they offer this training, but I'm wondering who else offers these trainings? Great, great question. I'm going to let Shannon answer because she's been through some of these trainings, but I do know from people who've gone through it that the Fidelity training is really good. Shannon, what do you think? Uh, First of all, Emily, Congratulations. I love women who are passionate about helping other people with their money. I think that is a great career to pursue. There are, Fidelity is a great option. There are actually, I tell people I cut my teeth at Merrill Lynch um, where I felt like there weren't enough women there. I actually feel like their training was incredible. Merrill Lynch, Wells Fargo, City, Ameriprise, some of these traditional financial advisor or planner businesses actually have really great training programs and can help you learn a lot of the nuts and bolts of planning. And there are certainly companies like mine or other individual financial planners. The XY Planning Network, I think, is a really big network of people helping um, other people with financial planners that you could potentially partner with them and learn from them. But A, I totally support that. B, I think there's a lot of different training programs out there and any of them are great just to get that knowledge if you don't have it yet. And C, just do it. And the CFP Board of Standards is also under a big initiative to get more women into the planning business, the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards. So you may want to check out their website as well. Definitely, We need more women out there. We do. (laughs) Thank you both. Now we'll do one from Irma. My name is Irma, and I'm 54 years old, and I am single. Work full-time, and I'm trying to pay down my debt, save money to purchase a co-op in the next two years or so, and still have a social life and travel. I'm not dating, so I'm solely responsible for entertaining myself. LOL, she writes. Can you give me some advice or insight how I can do it all? Oh, Irma. (laughs) And and again, this reminds me of Shannon's sacred cows, because Mm -hmm. you can't do it all. And I'm sorry to say you can't do it all, but you may be able to do some of the things on your list, most of the things on your list. And it's just a matter of getting really open and honest with the numbers. You got to figure out where your money is going today and where you want it to go. And that means keeping a good spending journal. And I would make it not just a spending journal where you track your spending, but do the kind of journaling where you track your spending and then after every week you go back and you write down how you feel about that money that you spent. And what you'll start to see is that some of your spending is not lining up with your values. And that will give you the guidance for where you should cut back. Irma. I love your spirit, and I love that it shined through in this question. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for writing in. And we'll do one more from Michelle. I am a 43-year-old former high school English teacher of 13 years. Last year, I went back to school to get my master's degree, and I'm now working at a nonprofit for educational leadership development and loving it. Great. I currently have no debt, earn $75,000 a year, and have an 8% employer contribution to a SEP IRA on top of that. I have $43,000 in a money market account. This was from selling my condo a year ago. 
I have 177000 in a traditional IRA, 4500 in a Roth IRA, and 89000 in the state teacher's retirement system, which is essentially an annuity as I understand it. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what I should do with the money I have in the annuity. I had the option to leave it there until age 65, at which point my yearly annual benefit is just under 26000 I believe that benefit lasts as long as I'm alive. I also have the option of rolling over the 89000 into a traditional IRA. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Also, in case it changes, anything. I have no human dependence, but I do have a dog. Well, and we love our dogs. We mm-hmm. love our fur babies as much <laughs> as we love our human dependence sometimes more. <laughs> that might be the Is case. Is that terrible? No, that's honest. <laughs> All right. Here's how I look at this. And if you've been listening to the show recently, you know that I like the idea of having some sort of a paycheck in retirement to at least cover your fixed costs. Social Security does that for people, but it doesn't cover everything. It only covers about 40% of what we need. And so as we get closer to retirement, one of the things that we want to look at is how do we close that gap? How do we come up with the rest of the money that we're going to need in our retirement? And how do we do it consistently? I took a look at that 89000 that you've got in the teacher's pension plan. And you're right. If it works like most teacher's pension plans do, it will last as long as you do. And so the question is, is rolling it over more beneficial than just leaving it in the plan? So I just did some quick and dirty math for you. I took the $89,000 and assumed that you rolled it into an IRA where you invested it in a diverse portfolio and got a return of 8% a year. If you made no additional contributions to that account in 22 years, by the time you're 65, you'll have about $560,000. Now, we know applying what's called the 4% rule, that usually you can withdraw 4% of the money you've got in a retirement account every year and be pretty comfortable that that money will last you 30 years, which would bring you to age 95. At a 4% withdrawal rate, you'd have about $22,000 a year. Now, that's not as much as you would have if you stuck with the annuity. Yes, the money in the retirement account might continue to grow, but then again, you might not get the full 8% rate that I computed on that growth to begin with. We also know that the rule's not perfect. We know that in years where the market tumbles, you need to take out a little bit less in order to make sure that the money will last as long as you do. Bottom line, if this were my money in this scenario, I'd stick with the annuity. And I would do it knowing that you've got plenty of growth in other places to carry you along. Did that make sense, Kelly? That was more numbers than I usually throw at people on the podcast, but I thought it was important here. No, I think it's really important. It made sense, and that's why we can pause and make notes. And we could also offer the the math or the equations that you use to get sure. those numbers for her in the show notes and on our site too. I think we'll do some additional content because, I mean, we appreciate when listeners give us their financial picture because it offers more 
catered advice and the personalization that every answer really needs. Yeah. So. Yeah, but our goal, too, is to just make it, it's for you, but it's also so everybody else can learn at the same time. Sure. But I think that was perfect. And I am so grateful for everyone writing in. And thank you for answering their questions. Absolutely. And in our Thrive segment this week, there is so much right now that is going on in the world that is shining a light on our differences rather than our similarities. We thought it would be nice to focus on something that we all want for a change, and that is happiness. Researchers at the National Bureau of Economic Research took a deep dive into the topic of happiness, and they found people's well-being is higher for those who are in workplaces with partner-like superiors, for those living as couples, and for those who have lived longer in their communities. Belonging to a tight-knit community, it brought happiness levels up for people of all ages, but especially for those 60 and older. What this finding seems to indicate is that We all crave community. We all crave support. So if you don't feel like you've got enough of it, think about joining a club. Think about joining a group. Find a team that sparks your interest. Or if you're looking for another way to join, join our Her Money Facebook group. We will be happy to have you in our conversation. And I have to say that Kelly and I are inspired on a daily basis by the thousands of women who are in it and sharing positively Mm -hmm. to help each other with their financial lives. So if you're in that group already, thank you so much. And if you're not, what are you waiting for? Yeah. And as we wrap (laughs) this up, thanks everybody so much for joining me today on Her Money, for joining Kelly today on Her Money. Thank you to Shannon McLay for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with celebrity trainer Jillian Michaels, and we'll talk soon.